It's been closed for five years. Now the Smithsonian is putting the final touches on the reopening of its paleontology exhibit, the fossils and layout totally reimagined from the original 1911 version. For a preview, producer Eric White and I visited project manager Siobhan Stars. The Smithsonian's had a fossil hall since we opened in 1911, if you can believe that. Um, but it actually had never been renovated in all of those years. It had been a number of um, kind of facelifts done to it, but no true renovation. And starting back around 2000, we went out to search for a major donor who could help us accomplish this really massive undertaking. And what we had to do was close the exhibition to upgrade the entire space, the infrastructure, We had to add structure to the floor. We had to update the mechanical systems, the electrical, everything. So in April of 2014, we closed the hall to the public to start that process. And we're so excited because this summer, on June 8th, we're going to reopen our doors, and we just can't wait for the visitors to come in. And what happened to the exhibit pieces during that period of time? So it took us about a year. There were over 2,500 fossils in the old hall, as well as all the um, iconic historical dioramas and murals in the space. And we deinstalled all of those with tender loving care and move them back into collections. Some of the largest had to be shipped off-site because we literally did not have space in the building to take care of them here. Um, and then we conserved all of them, and we've been remounting them to make them scientifically accurate and in really new, exciting poses. And now we're starting the process of getting ready for the opening. Because the bones are pretty popular as far as museums go, aren't they always considered one of the major attractions? Yes, definitely. Our visitors come to see the real thing. They come to see the the objects. And since we are the National Natural History Museum and we have the nation's collections, um, it's really important for us and for our visitors to see those fossils. And um, a lot of them had not been updated, so they were no longer accurate. Um, The last time they'd been posed or studied was back in the 60s or 70s or even earlier. Um, So this was a great opportunity for us to really update our science. I was going to say the science itself uh, acquires new knowledge about how these animals lived and what they did and what their behaviors were. Exactly. I mean, science is changing daily. I don't think visitors really understand um, the process of science and how quickly everything changes. Um, But even just in the past six months, we've had to make changes to some of the poses and some of the mounts due to new science. So it's a very active field of research. And what is the process for planning a new exhibit? Because you do have a chance to start fresh, and you don't want to simply reproduce what was there in 1911, as you said. So who's involved? What kind of teamwork is required? And who makes the decisions? We had a really big team, um, but amazingly, we all got along, which I think can sometimes not be the case. Um, We have three lead scientists, and they're all paleontologists, but they represent different disciplines within paleontology. So we actually have a curator of Dinosauria, which is a wonderful title, Matt Carano. That might be the best title in Washington. It is. Don't you want that on your business card? Um, And then we also have a paleoecologist and paleobotanist combined. His name is Scott. Wing, and then a, um, an expert in um, fossil mammals, and also how things become fossils, which we call taphonomy, Kay Berensmeyer. And those three were the lead in terms of all of the science content. But then you add to the science educators, exhibit developers like myself, designers, model makers, artists, engineers. Um, every trade really comes to play when you build an exhibition, and it's a long process. And how much of this expertise is in-house at the Smithsonian? We have all of the expertise here, but for a project of this size, we're talking about a 31,000-square-foot project that involved a lot of physical, um, mechanical renovations to a built space that's also a historic building. We did have to bring in a lot of uh, um, external expertise for that. And you're pretty sure the roof won't leak? It will not leak. I can guarantee that. (laughs) 
And what about the flow of it? Because uh, do you think of it in terms of what happens when someone walks in the archway leading to the exhibit? Is that part of the planning, how people will walk through it and the order in which they'll see things? Yeah. So the first fundamental decision we had to make was, you know, this is our one chance, probably for the next 30 years, to define what a fossil exhibition looks like in a national museum of our size. We get six million visitors a year. We're the most visited natural history museum in the world. And what we really wanted to do was improve both the circulation and the flow for those visitors and that experience that they have here. Um, But we also wanted to really reinforce to them that science and the science we do here is relevant and timely, that there's something there in that study of the past that is important today. Um, And so what we decided to do was start with most recent time, and then as you work your way through the exhibit, you move deeper and deeper and deeper into the past. So it goes back about 200 million years, right, at the the far reaches? It goes back 3.5 billion years to the origins of life on the planet. So that's way before the dinosaurs. Way before the dinosaurs. Got it. And how do you make sure that the exhibit information is understandable for the average person, yet not so simplified that it's baby talk. Right. So we actually do quite a bit of research. Um, We bring out samples of our labels, all of our script and our graphics, and we work with um, visitors on them. And we present them to visitors in um, scientific studies. And we get scientific quantifiable data about what is um, understandable, what is not understandable, what is too much, what is just enough. And we did years of that work on this project. We're speaking with Javon Starr. She is project manager at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Why don't we go out into the still under construction hall and you can show us some of the exhibits? I'd love to. Okay, we're standing in a room that's about the size of a large living room, but it's all black. What is this exhibit? So this is a replica of a coal mine from southwestern Virginia, from Pocahontas, Virginia. Um, And what we found there, as we find in many mines, is as the miners are tunneling for coal, they find the remnants of a fossil forest preserved forever in the ceiling and floor of the tunnels. It's about 350 million years old. So as you look up at the ceiling, you're seeing the remnants of trees, their leaves, branches, roots, trunks, preserved. So mines are really good sources of paleontology. Amazing sources of paleontology, yes. So they will call local paleontologists and geologists who can come in and learn a lot about ancient ecosystems from these fossils. Does this also happen, say, in deep construction of buildings where they put in foundations or even digging tunnels for subways and so on. It does, exactly. Yep, road construction, any kind of construction where you're upturning the earth, you find these amazing fossils that have been buried for millions of years. And here we are in the more main part of the exhibit with a really high ceiling and there's construction as you can hear. Here's something with a really long neck and a tiny head and it's an impressive skeleton. What is it? This is a diplodocus. It's a Jurassic era sauropod. It's an herbivore, so it ate plants, and it's about 90 feet long. In the new exhibition, unlike the old, you'll actually be able to walk right underneath its neck and head and the tail. And this is probably how it would have looked in real life, just taking a step. It is, exactly. So it's been frozen as if it's walking across a tree-filled landscape and reaching towards a tree out in front of it as well. And it's been updated for science. So you'll, you notice that um, in older exhibitions, dinosaurs like this were posed almost like miniature tanks with their legs splayed quite out wide. But we now know in science that they're much more upright in their posture. And so we've updated that all for the more current understanding in science. Okay. And if we walk over just a few feet away, there's something that's not as long, but its head is really enormous. And this has got to be T-Rex. This is T-Rex. Ultimate predator, 
And we've decided to give you exactly what you would expect of a predator like T-Rex. He is decapitating our iconic Triceratops hatcher. So the Triceratops in an earlier exhibit might have been standing on its own, but here you're showing how it might have or probably did meet its demise. Exactly, yes. Hatcher is much beloved here, and he was in the old hall in an upright pose all alone, and we decided to put them both together because they did live in the same ecosystem, and this is likely what happened to many Triceratopses, unfortunately. Now, this Triceratops has a big head. He looks like a meat eater also, just like the T-Rex. He does, especially with that large frill, as we call it, on the back, but he actually was a plant eater, not a meat eater. And this T-Rex is enormous. These are not the actual bones, though, are they? You use castings? It's a mix. So the T-Rex is about 50% complete. So if you look at the tail that you'll also be able to walk under, that is complete and original fossil material, as well as many of the ribs and the leg bones. The skull, however, is a cast. And the reason for that is? Typically, the skulls are either very fragmentary when we find skulls because of the nature of the bone, or they're just too important for research, so we keep them back in the, in the collections. And over here, something with enormous tusks. Yeah, so this, I think, um, will be a great entry point for visitors. As you walk into the gallery, you'll be greeted by our trumpeting mastodon um, that's been reposed and welcomes you into the hall as you enter. And his steps are pretty close together. He almost has a dainty look to him. He does. For something so large, it's, it's unusual. And I think it will be a little bit of a surprise to visitors to see how graceful they must have been in life. And I think it's a lovely connection because um, the lineage of mastodons and mammoths is actually related to modern elephants. And so you've just entered the museum visiting Henry, the elephant in our rotunda, and you walk into deep time being greeted by one of his ancient ancestors, the mastodon. Well, he'd make a great coat rack. He would. <laughs> okay, and now we're back in the laboratory just off the exhibit floor. This is glassed in so exhibit visitors can see into this lab, and you want them to know that these are not actors pretending to be scientists inside this enclosure. That's right. We are sitting in our working fossil lab. This is a real preparatory lab. They're doing real science here and real fossil preparation, just as we do behind the scenes all the time, every day. And the people who work in here are volunteers. They're not actors, and they're doing real research for us. They've been trained, and they work with our scientists. And we're always soliciting for more and new volunteers as well if people want to get involved and work within the museum. And what's your hope for this exhibit? I hope that people walk in and are, first of all, they're just amazed by the story of life on Earth. It is an awesome story. And I think because we've been able to capture all life, all of time in one exhibition, that will quickly become apparent. Um, I hope they really spend a lot of time looking at the fossils. They're just beautiful. And they reveal so much about the history of life. And I hope, especially kids, get really excited about science. And I imagine this is quite a crowning professional achievement personally. This is definitely the biggest project I've ever worked on, and I'm so excited to see it open. Um, a little bit nervous about that as well, um, but really excited. Siobhan Stars is project manager at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. A reminder, the exhibit reopens to the public on June 8th. We'll post this interview along with photos of the still unfinished exhibit at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to The Federal Drive when you want and on the device you want at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. 
By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 